Welcome back to the Harvard Center for International Development's weekly speaker series podcast. This week, we are joined by Carolina Sanchez Paramo, Global Director of Poverty and Equity Global Practice at the World Bank. I'm sitting down with Carolina after her virtual appearance at the Harvard Kennedy School on December 4th, 2020, where she discussed the global socioeconomic impact of COVID-19 on households. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, you discussed large-scale efforts by the World Bank to survey countries around the world to understand the wide-ranging impacts of COVID-19. Can you please tell us a little bit more about this work and your findings? Sure, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. What we discovered early in the crisis in the early spring as the pandemic was spreading around the world and countries were shutting down, was that on the one hand, you know, development institutions like ourselves and governments trying to think about a response really needed timely and accurate information about what was happening on the ground. But it was precisely at that point where, you know, national statistical offices and other agents that usually provide this information also had had to shut down and were unable to conduct their regular operations. So you had enormous needs for information and a complete information void happening at the same time. So this was really the motivation for us to think a little bit creatively about how we could you know, generate data and information on what was happening on the ground and do so with high frequency so that we could track you know, the, the impacts of the crisis. We had had some experience in the past using phone surveys. We used those during the Ebola crisis. We had used them to monitor the situation in fragile situations or conflict situations. So it occurred to us that this was something that we could do at a much larger scale. So in late March, we launched an unprecedented effort covering over 100 countries across all developing regions using phone surveys. So basically what we did was call households using their mobile phones and ask them about the impacts that the crisis was having on them, you know, the impact that it was having on their jobs, on their incomes, on their health, of course, whether they were able to move around and how they were coping with that and also if they were receiving any help from the government in COVID. So what we found was that the impacts were very significant. So large employment losses, large income losses, and they were very widespread. So this was affecting all groups, poor, the non-poor, urban and rural areas. It was affecting men and women, so very widespread. And then, of course, households were dealing with this in different ways. So those that are more affluent, you know, are using savings, they are in some cases taking loans, but those that are not don't really have the ability to do that. So in many cases, they are selling some of their productive assets. And in many cases, they are going hungry. You know, they are skipping meals because they just don't have the money to buy the food that they need. And the other very worrisome thing that we see is kids being out of school. You know, a lot of schools have closed and in many cases, kids don't have access to digital technologies and they cannot connect. So those are, if you want, some of the important impacts that we see. Governments have responded to this in many cases in these early months with cash transfers. So trying to put money into people's pockets. And we see that happening. You know, we do see people saying, yes, we are receiving help from the government, but the impacts are so large that that help has been important and critical, but insufficient. So there are still many who are affected and are not receiving help. And we hope that that changes in the months to come. 
To follow up on that a little bit, considering how widespread the impact of COVID-19 has been, I was wondering about a coordinated response. You know, I think of the scientific community, how they came together to piece you know, piece together really a solution to the COVID-19 pandemic with a vaccination. Why haven't we seen a similar coordinated global economic response to the impact of COVID-19 on families? Or is there one that just isn't being highlighted? I think that already what you were describing with the World Bank is, like you said, it is really unprecedented. So do you think that something like that will lead to a more coordinated economic response? Or love to hear your thoughts about that. I think there's been some effort to have a coordinated response, although maybe it feels less coordinated than in previous crises. And I think part of that is the result of so many countries being affected and in a way then so many countries having to focus, at least initially in their own needs, right? And, and that I think reduces some of the bandwidth for, for this coordination. But, but I think what we've seen on the health space is encouraging, right? The, the coordination that has happened both in the development of the vaccine and now the conversations that we are seeing about the distribution of that vaccine. And, you know, the World Bank is part of those conversations and we are working with countries thinking about how we can accelerate that process and make sure that the vaccines reach, you know, those in, in low-income and middle-income countries. The other issue where we've seen some coordination, and I think this maybe hasn't received, you know, that much attention, but I think has been critical, is around debt. You know, if you think about how the crisis has played out, many economies have shut down. This has put, you know, many households under stress and many firms under stress, as we were saying earlier. And, and governments have had to mobilize significant fiscal resources to support households and firms during this period, in addition to, of course, mount a response to the health shock where that has been important. And this is true for low-income countries, middle-income countries, and high-income countries, which means that, you know, in some cases, governments did have resources and did have the capacity, you know, to mobilize their fiscal muscle. But in other cases, they didn't. Uh, and in many cases, these governments were already stretched, fiscally speaking, and now they've had to stretch themselves even more. So that has basically translated into increasing levels of debt. And there's, there's a bit of preoccupation that coming out of the crisis, we could actually have a debt crisis you know, as a consequence of this elevated spending. So there's been quite a bit of coordination internationally led by the G20 and something that is called the, the Paris Club, which is an association of countries that are big lenders to first suspend all debt payments. And that has already been going on for a few months and has been extended into 2021. And then maybe initiate conversations about debt restructuring, right? And the idea there is, you know, how can you support these countries, prevent them from, you know, completely catastrophic sort of crisis at the moment, and then help them have a stronger recovery moving forward. So that's another area where I think we have seen significant international coordination, but that again, maybe has been less visible on the press, but I think very important in terms of what's happening now and, you know, how the recovery would look like. To follow up a little bit, when you talk about this apology of a debt crisis, I, I wanted to actually go into the micro level a little bit and focus on the individual households. So these COVID-19 remittances, like what role do they play, do you think, in the long-term socioeconomic stability of households, considering that they're really are only temporary? Um, and I, from my understanding, a lot of them are it's based on the fact that 
this kind of like debt situation will come to an end soon with a vaccine, for example. So I just wanted to ask, like, what do these remittances play in the long term socioeconomic stability of households? So I think two reflections, one more about the short term. And, you know, I think in the short term, any support that governments have been able to mobilize, either through existing safety net programs or by launching, you know, in many cases, emergency safety net programs that are meant to be temporary, right, by nature, has been critical. And even though I did say earlier that it's been insufficient, the reality is that, you know, you can look at this as the glass half full or the glass half empty, right? Yes, it hasn't been enough for everybody, but if that has, hadn't been there, we would be in a much worse situation, right? So I think in the short term, the conclusion is that this safety net response has been positive. You know, there's nothing else we can say about it. And even if it wasn't, you know, targeted perfectly, it doesn't matter. Everybody's suffering to the extent that you can put money in people's pockets. I'm sure it's had a great impact. What's going to happen over the medium term? It's interesting because I think it's going to be a variety of things. So certainly in some cases, these interventions are going to be rolled back, right? And, and it was very clear from the beginning that they were temporary, that they were meant to basically, you know, provide people with cash for a number of months. And in many cases, that's fine because the households that are being supported will have the ability, right, to go back to work, you know, earn income again, be on their foot, you know, and then just move on. And that's fine. Then in that case, you should stop having that assistance. It is possible that this takes more time for some households than for others, right? So some of the discussion right now is, okay, even in those cases where this thing was meant to be temporary, how do we roll it back in a way that we don't, in a way, take the protection away too soon, right? So some of what's happening at the moment is you know, governments trying to work out ways in which they can continue to target these transfers and roll them back by taking into account the situation of different people and their ability to recover and to connect back if you want to economic growth and, and jobs. And that's difficult. So I suspect we'll see mixed success there, but the fact that people are thinking about it is important. The second thing that I think we're going to see is that there's been a lot of innovation that has taken place around these programs because of the very exceptional nature of this situation, right? So all of a sudden you have programs that have for the most part targeted the existing poor, programs that have in many cases function on a, on a sort of paper basis and that have given payments face-to-face, -face, right? People have to show up to a particular office, etc. They've had to reach new populations. They've had to move completely to a digital environment. They've had to think about ways of identifying beneficiaries that are not the traditional ways, are maybe by targeting especially or by using administrative data. So all of that, which came out of necessity, really, right? The need to respond fast and to reach those that were suffering, all of that will stay, right? All those are innovations that are in a way independent of the crisis. So, so you could see some longer term effects that I think ultimately will make these programs better both in terms of the way that they deliver and they target households. And I think in some cases, you'll end up with programs that are bigger and are reaching a, a higher number of households as a consequence of this. So that's kind of my, my vision. How to get there may be, you know, a little bit tricky and, you know, there will be learning along the way. But all in all, I'm, I'm actually quite confident that out of, you know, what's been a really critical situation, in this space at least, we're going to see, I think, some positive developments over time.
You discussed a little bit on the widespread impact of COVID-19 before, but you described a very different picture for some with some people using savings and others going hungry. And so I started thinking about your work regarding the new poor, and I wanted to ask how this kind of expansion with the use of technology would impact this kind of aspect. Specifically, I wanted to ask you regarding even though we have this innovation, is it going to be accessible to all people? Is it going to widen the gap? We were already, I think, worried about, you know, what we call kind of the digital divide right before COVID. And, and this is not new. I mean, there was a world development report a few years ago that examined, you know, the huge potential that digital technologies can have for development, but also raised, you know, some red flags saying, if we want everybody to benefit from this, we really need to make investments, right? In terms of, you know, making sure that everybody can be connected, but also making sure that people have the skills to use this technology, making sure that the technology is available, right? So it's not just about access, it's about access, affordability, and the capability to actually use the technologies productively. So that was already happening before COVID. And in a way, what COVID has done is on the one hand, you know, provide a massive push for the adoption of these technologies in service delivery. You know, we just talked about cash transfers and the fact that, you know, in many cases now they are being paid digitally. We talked about education during the, the session earlier and the fact that, you know, in many countries, school has been taking place virtually. And, you know, those processes were already ongoing, but they have been really accelerated by the need to, you know, avoid face-to-face interactions. And there's been, again, a lot of innovation around the idea of using digital technologies to keep businesses going, keep people employed and so on. And that's good. But the problem is that all of that is happening in a world where we, where we had these divides, right? And where we had people that were not connected to these technologies, could not afford these technologies, could not use these technologies. And those differences you know, have been exacerbated during the crisis. So I think coming out of the crisis, one of the things that we need to think about very seriously is how to tackle those gaps and how to really, you know, the digital revolution is unstoppable, right? So so the question here is not whether those innovations should be happening or whether we should move in that direction. I think that train has left the station. I think the question now is how do we quickly close this gap and what are some of the investments that are needed, both in connectivity, as I said, but also in some of these analog complements so that we can make sure that everybody everybody benefits from this. And, you know, again, these were questions that were being asked before, but I think they've been really brought to the forefront by the crisis. And there's an urgency now in tackling some of these problems that maybe, you know, wasn't quite there before. I completely agree that these questions were there before, but now it's being brought to the table again. To kind of wrap up a little bit, moving forward, What do you think are the most immediate steps that the World Bank is going to focus on and other countries will focus on to start addressing these questions that COVID-19 is raising? So in in the immediate term, I mean, if I look around what my colleagues and and my team are doing, I see, if you want, sort of four areas of work that, that we are pursuing, right? The first one continues to be the focus on saving lives. Right? And that was very critical in the early months of the pandemic. There was a very strong response to support health systems. That is now shifting towards the vaccine, how to make sure that the vaccine is accessible, how to make sure that it is affordable, 
how to make sure that people get vaccinated, right? So that's that's going to be sort of a stream of work that is going to continue where the health teams at the bank and, of course, you know, health ministries, et cetera, around the world are very focused. The second stream of work was on protecting households, right? And we talked a lot about that. And I suspect that that will remain important. You know, we are not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. And if you believe the macro projections that we have, you know, it is going to take a while for economies to get back on track, for employment levels to go back to what they were before. So there will continue to be many households that need that extra support, right? Even as the economy is starting to recover. And for some of them, it will be difficult to be part of that recovery, particularly for those that maybe feel sick or lost a productive member of the household or had to sell some of their productive assets. So that protection of households in the form of cash, but also in the form of you know, helping them recover some of the human capital that they've lost in this process will continue to be critical, I think, in the medium term, even, even as we roll back some of these programs. The third is supporting businesses, right? When you talk about sort of macro recovery, that all sounds great, but ultimately what you're talking about is individuals and firms and, and they're getting back to work, right? Across different sectors in urban areas, in rural areas. During the crisis, governments have tried to support businesses and they've tried to prevent businesses from going under because everybody understands that it's easier to help somebody weather the crisis than to bring in a way businesses back from death. The problem is, as happened with households, that many of the existing programs for firms are targeted to the formal sector. They're targeted to large firms. So some of the challenge that economies and governments are going to face in the recovery is how to bring back not just the bigger firms who themselves were already more able to cope, but how to bring back some of these small and medium firms that actually provide employment for most people in any country. So that's going to continue again to be an area of focus that is going to require interventions in the financial sector, but it's also going to require, you know, we were just talking about digital, right, a digital transition and so on. And then finally, as it happens, I think with many crises, you know, when countries are under stress, a lot of the structural constraints, right, that maybe we don't see during good times become very visible. And this may have to do with, you know, service delivery, they may have to do with competition policy, they may have to do with trade, with infrastructure, right? So these are kind of long-term growth determinants that policy should be addressing on a regular basis, but you know it doesn't always happen. But at a time of crisis, it becomes very evident that there are these constraints and these bottlenecks. So that's also going to be an important agenda moving forward. You know, how to, in order to foster inclusive and sustainable growth, what are some of these constraints that are, you know, legislative or implementation constraints that you have to address with policy in these cases? So, so that's those are sort of the different streams of work that I see that have already been in play over the last few months. But of course, what you're focusing on will change as countries hopefully move into the recovery phase and start growing again and, and, and really focus on making that recovery as inclusive as possible. I see what you're saying about multi-pronged approach. It definitely sounds very important. Thank you again so much for taking the time. You can find more information about Carolina's work at the World Bank at www.worldbank.org. You can learn more about the Center for International Development and the CID's research events and upcoming events at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back soon.